just to let you know, next week we will have class, and then we will take a break until after the first. So we should be able to. Um, How about the week of the first? Sorry. Do you have a class that day, that Friday. I don't know the dates, Don. I'll get back to everybody. Well, you won't have class Monday because that's. Hmm? You won't, you won't have the Monday night because that's uh, two days before. I mean, the day before New Year's Eve. Then we won't that Friday. I mean, that's. I'll get I'll get back to you by email, but. Um, but we'll meet next week, and then I think we don't meet for a couple of weeks. We'll get we'll get back to you. Two weeks. Um, Five, six. Sorry. Let's. These are. January sixth, a new week. This was, um, this was, I see the, um, I'm not sure that I gave you the, um, the psalm, it did, 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 oh, I don't think I did, the, I don't, you, you, we didn't get this sheet with psalms on it for the lyrics. Don't. I'm going to just read it, but I, I don't, I'm not sure that you have it, so just wait. <clears throat> this was the reading earlier in the week. Comfort, give comfort to my people, says your God. Speak tender, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her. That her service is at an end, her guilt is expiated. Indeed, she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. That's his great love. A voice cries out, in the desert prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wasteland a highway for our God. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rugged land shall be made a plain, the rough country a broad valley. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is Isaiah, and he goes on, Go up to a high mountain, Zion, a herald of glad tidings. Cry out at the top of your voice. He's calling everybody to Jerusalem. Um, it was a practice of the Jews to make pilgrimage up a mountain several times a year. I just wanted to um, recall this reading earlier in the week. Um, if, you, if we put it together with um, Christ's words to us today, um, sad to think about. The people called John a man possessed with demons, and he called Christ, or they called Christ a, a drunkard. Um, Christ is reminding us um, how, how too easily we, we can be critical in the wrong way, and too easily we can be affected by what other people think of us, that we have to live the truth, speak it, um, even though people are not going to like what we do. So it's Lent, um, it's, um, it's from the readings, it's a time um, to lower the high things, to raise the low, to clear the valleys or the plains and make them into these fruit prairies. It means taking on those things that are excesses in us both ways, overdoing things, underdoing them. We're trying to um, 
live in a way that draws us closer to Christ, to get all the stuff that's, that's in the way, out of the way, to make a place for him. So it's a time of waiting. Um, we're asked to wait. That's the nature of our fast um, in Advent. So that's where I just wanted to say this in preparation for the prayer because it's what I'd like to pray for this morning. So in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You call us um, to learn to wait, to hope, um, to be strengthened in those qualities. Because so often in our world we want things now, and because we do, we often make compromises. We do we go overboard on some things, and we don't do enough. Um, strengthen us in our efforts to put all of that out of the way to make a place for you, so that um, in your arrival at Christmas, our hearts will have been prepared that um, there will be in our own hearts a greater peace, a greater sense of justice, a greater sense of love in everything we do. Help us to bring um, more of you from the preparations we've made to everything we do, particularly with each other. I'll ask a blessing on all of us who carry burdens going into this Christmas season. We so often do, it's a time of such expectation. Um, help our hearts to be at peace. I ask a special grace of protection for Suzanne. Surround her and the kids with your protection. Keep her safe. Um, keep all of us safe in these holidays. And for Fred, too, because he's not here. Um, let our hearts be quiet. Um, stand with you in trust. Give us the courage um, to speak to a world that doesn't want to hear you. Um, and a humility um, to bring the right spirit to it. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you all um, <clears throat> just, I don't, you won't, I think, I think Suzanne had them to print, but I wasn't even thinking about this this morning when I left the house. So just listen, this, I chose um, a couple of psalms for the Advent readings, the Advent lyrics. Um, that were appropriate for Advent. This one has to do with climbing the mountain because we look at, at Advent and Lent as uh, times of struggle that we're asked to more earnestly take on our sins, lower them, raise the good things, um, bring ourselves more into conformity with Christ. That's a climb. And you know it's fitting, those of you who've done the uh, Divine Comedy, you know that um, Purgatory is pictured as a mountain, and I happen to believe, I've said all, this to all of you who've been in the class, that I believe we're supposed to see this life as a purgatory. The church is um, the image of purgatory. It's in the church that we, with the help that we get, the divine help that we get from Christ, that we help straighten out our lives. So keep in mind this image is a, of a mountain. Um, this is some... Um, 122. It's a, it's a song of ascent. <clears throat> David, I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now our feet are standing within your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city walled round about. There the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. As it was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There are the thrones of justice, the thrones of the house of David. For the peace of Jerusalem 
pray. May those who love you prosper. May peace be within your ramparts, prosperity within your towers. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I pray for your good. Okay. Okay. should have been in here looking at this. Um, <laughs> God, it's the danger of being a part of a community um, and being too talkative, <laughs> too ready to. A um, couple of things before we look at the Scarlet Letter. Um, they're by way of review, but it's, um, it's also m my way of trying to um, set a background that help, will help for our reading, a couple of things to remember. One is, one of the fundamental principles of St. Thomas was to learn to see what's there, okay? What's, what is. <coughs> what's there? Because so often, you've been, <laughs> probably getting tired of hearing me say this, but so often we read for our own ideas. Um, and it makes us bad readers. We've got things in our mind, we've got certain beliefs, and we read to find them in reality. And we don't even know that it blinds us. So instead of seeing things as they are, to see what's there, what is, we don't. Um, we pray um, to receive sight. We think we all see well. <laughs> we've not read a work in which one of the major themes wasn't reading badly. I mean, when every work we've read, people in the work don't read well with that they see around them, they misread all the time. So Thomas reminds us that it's, it's so important because if Plato's right and we're in this cave, then we tend to make judgments by appearances. We don't go under the surface to see things, and every one of the poets has been true to those surfaces, but they're also helping us to see something deeper. So when we read Shakespeare, for instance, um, in the, in the comedies and tragedies, and particularly the tragedies, um, what we saw um, was that um, that Shakespeare's always helping us to see beyond appearances, both in comedy and in tragedy. And I want to read this line from Eliot, and then give a couple of examples quickly to just Shakespeare behind us. Eliot said that in the latter works, Shakespeare became a poet who's finally seen through the dramatic action of men into a spiritual action which transcends it. Dramatic action in the ordinary sense is inadequate for making his emotions perceptible for us to feel these things. Shakespeare tends, therefore, to simplify his characters to make them vehicles for conveying something of which they are unaware. <coughs> In poetic drama, we are lifted to another plane of reality, and a hidden and mysterious pattern of reality appears as from a palimpsest off a text, off a surface. 
Something is exhibited of which we have only rare glimpses in our daily life. <clears throat> so, um, if, you, if you go back quickly to... Um, what is that? If you go back quickly to the Shakespeare plays... We've been we were dealing with two actions, comedy and tragedy. And remember the, the trajectory of tragedy is from bad fortune to good. It goes from bad fortune to good. And in tragedy it goes from good fortune to bad. Now just briefly, generally, when we look at good tragedies and comedies, we discover that um, unlike what most people think, the nature of tragedy is good. It always ends with a rest. Um, did I give you guys that emotion, the, the chart of emotions, the true trajectories of emotions? No. I'll get it to you next week. According to St. Thomas, emotions, emotions have a nature. We think of emotions as being unstable and you know, uncontrolled. Emotions have a nature. Um, all emotions begin with desire or love, and there's two trajectories. On the positive trajectory, the end of every love is rest, a joy. That's the natural end of every emotion, because there's a nature. We, God gave us desires to be fulfilled. The natural end, the, the actual end for all of us, for all of our desires, is God. Emotions are infinite, um, they're limitless. St. Augustine's, uh, my soul is restless till I rest in thee. The only thing that can answer restless, infinite emotions is an infinite being. That's why we go wrong so often, because so often we give our emotions to things that won't satisfy, so we keep going on, getting frustrated. And, the natural end of our desires is rest, joy. That's the positive trajectory, okay? Whenever anything gets in the way of, of satisfying those emotions, we get to the, um, the, the negative, which you can call the negative trajectory, from hate to sorrow. We, we have to fight against those things that get in the way of achieving our emotions. Okay, so there's two trajectories. I'll give you the next week. There's two trajectories. There's one emotion that's between them. All the other states like desire, I can't remember, trust, hope, you know, rest, joy. Um, between these two emotions, or these two trajectories is anger. Um, because, and by the way, he's following Aristotle here. St. Thomas saw very clearly that ang anger is not a sin, even though the world wants to make it that. Wrath is a sin. Anger's not. Wrath is a sin. Anger is the rectifying emotion. When something threatens us, we call on an anger to help resist it, to help get us through, to push us towards the, the end, the desire, the joy we long for, or to, to remove the threats that get in the way. Um, so tragedy or, or comedy begins with some bad fortune and ends in good tragedy 
begins in good fortune and, and ends in bad. But both of them, this is the point, both of them end in rest. Because even in tragedy, whatever, whatever threatened the tragic hero or the other people um, is answered. Whatever evil or injustice was in the way, let it be with Anthony and Cleopatra, let it be with Othello, because of the two tragedies we just dealt, dealt with. Those injustices, those disorders are answered. So every work of art, tragic or comedy, implies a good. This is Boethius when he said, there is no bad fortune. In a world in which a good God rules, God is always at work trying to bring good out of evil. So in these plays, in the tragedies, in Othello and um, Anthony Cleopatra, we were taken through the actions of this tragic hero, Othello and Anthony Cleopatra, to deal with all these disorders in the world. In the case of Anthony and Cleopatra, it's to come to a transcendent love, a love that nobody in that world knows. Caesar, for sure, has no clue about what that world is. In Othello, same thing. I mean, Othello loves Desdemona. He, he doesn't know how much Iago is manipulating him and comes to a point of um, wanting to see him killed. But he arrives at a point of seeing his faults and answers them. So every, every comedy and tragedy has a, a point of recognition, a peripatia, a turn, peripatia, a turn, and an anagnosis, a recognition. That turn, in, in, uh, in Aristotle's language is called a peripatia, a turn. The church calls it a metanoia. Two weeks ago, um, in the first week of Advent, we had the reading from John, and it's, it's a part of Lent every year, every single year, we're going to hear that reading. The call from John is to repent. Um, that's the first week of Advent, to call us into a period of repent, to pick up our sins and struggle to answer them. The metanoia, the, the word repent, comes from penetere, I think in the Latin, which means to feel sorrow for our wrongs. So every tragic hero comes to a point of recognition where he sees his wrongs and turns, the action turns. Whatever wrong was at work in the play is answered, it's put to rest. So even in tragedy, the wrong is answered, um, a ground has been prepared for a new order, a restoration, a recovery, or something new. So all tragedy and all comedy have implied in them both some good end. One answers evil, um, um, the other is in a line towards um, joy. The end of every comedy, the end of every comedy is joy and wonder. Go back to um, Merchant. Um, the end of every comedy is happiness, joy. Whatever difficulties that were there in the beginning are overcome and we're left in joy. So at the end of every tragedy or comedy, that's why we're happy, we feel glad, okay? The end of every tragedy is um, um, wonder and awe. Possibly a little bit of dread, but at least wonder and awe. Because whatever evil is there has been answered, and the tragic hero is always, always, in good tragedy, always left on the threshold of the next world. Othello's there. 
he knows he's leaving this life. He's going to take his own life. He, um, he, he, I mean, to, to say he feels awful is an understatement. Um, he loved Desdemona. He call, called it my, my, the pearl of life. You know, he, he calls himself the Judean who took away the pearl. Um, you, you can't get a grief greater than that. It's tragic. He, um, the depth of his sorrow is great. Anthony and Cleopatra, same thing. Anthony, remember we've talked about it. Anthony loses himself. He doesn't know who he is. Cleopatra changes. At the end of the play, neither one of them is identified with their regime anymore. <laughs> The beginning of the play, Anthony's already divided, but he's Roman, thoroughly Roman. Cleopatra is thoroughly Egyptian. As we go through the readings, I went through them, we watch them dissociate from their world. They lose their identity and they stand in a world that the Romans don't know. The love that they have for each other has taken them out of that world. Both of them are full of regrets. Anthony, for what he does, Cleopatra says to Anthony the first time she leaves the battle, she said, I'm sorry, pardon me. I mean, she feels it deeply. Both of them have changed. So, what's at the center of both um, genres is a metanoia, this change, this recognition that there's something wrong. Okay? Um, we're going to leave that world now. See, I think I've covered that pretty much. Um, and we're moving away from the Renaissance into a novel. And it's a, as you know from your reading of it, it's it's a, it's a novel about sadness and sorrow. It's a it's a, it's a deep grief at the center of it. Um, the one 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 last thing, um, because it has Shakespeare was a master because he knew the whole ancient world. He he could see things that most of us just don't see. So the good of the there's a good implied in both um, tragedy and comedy. And the and the and comedy hints hints at a transcendent life. Remember, um, everybody has <coughs> joy when they go to Belmont, but there's a there's a wonder in everybody because everybody knows that Anthony's ships came back when they didn't expect it, so they're left with a sense of the miraculous. That's wonderful. Same thing with Helena; she accomplishes that miracle, you know, when everybody thought miracles were gone, and at the end, um, she manages to fulfill all of Bertram's conditions. She is absolutely obedient. So um, lots of other women would have turned from him and said, what a jerk. I deserve better than this. She is absolutely obedient to what she does and is able to pull off something nobody, something nobody with a lesser love would have been able to pull off. So at the end of All's Well, we're shown this extraordinary love and it's through her that that rigid aristocratic system is the lines between classes is quieted some. It's the beginning of a change in regimes. She's the instrument for seeing. So there's a great wonder. Um, so tragedy and comedy, as Shakespeare shows it, leaves us with these um, amazing emotions, this sense of joy and wonder and comedy and something like awe, um, maybe dread. Uh, but at the end of every tragedy, the good tragedy heroes are on the verge of another world. Oedipus, remember Oedipus tried his eyes in Oedipus Rex, but in Oedipus at Colonus, the play that completes that trilogy, he's, he's assumed raised by the gods. He, he, he has a wisdom nobody else knows in that world. St. Thomas, this is from the center of our church. Shakespeare, these things informed everything Shakespeare did. 
the natural virtues that produce a good in our life are um, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, or courage. Those are the natural virtues, right? Prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, or courage. Those are things we're supposed to be practicing every day of our lives because they're within our nature to do that. We can become more just on our own. We can become more temperate, not eat so much, not drink so much. We can become more just. Aristotle argued that the justice was the crown because it meant we had to make our own lives better in order to give others their due. Um, and courage. Um, to have the courage to do something that's not easy for us. Those are the natural virtues. The supernatural virtues, those given by God that are beyond our, our capabilities, are faith, hope, and charity. Love, hope, love, hope, faith, yeah? One of the differences between those supernatural virtues and natural virtues, and too often we judge the world by natural virtues and we forget the supernatural, even though, according to our faith, we shouldn't forget them. We should be struggling to be open. Remember, we can't control those. Those are given to us. They're gifts of God. So the only way they come to us is by offering ourselves, opening ourselves to Him. And just as a reminder, um, a love, love is only love according to our faith. Hold on to this. Love is only love when we cease to have a reason for loving another person. Hope is only hope when we no longer have a reason for hoping. I hope this is all clear. Because otherwise we're just, in, let's say hope. I hope I'll get a bicycle for Christmas. That's not hope. I mean, language is so screwed that up for us. Hope isn't real unless we cease to have a reason for hoping. Because then we're putting, we're, we're living in the context of a power that we recognize is greater than our own. We believe God can help us do something. There's no way to come to those supernatural virtues without humility. I hope that's clear, because they're beyond us. So love is never really love um, unless you have a reason for not loving. Hope isn't hope unless you have a reason not to hope. Then it, hope means something, right? When the ship's going down or whatever. The same with faith. Faith is only faith when you no longer have a reason to have faith in something. Those are all transcendent goods. So, um, in the natural order, we're held to our natural virtues. Those, we're supposed to be working on those. While we do it, if we're, if we're living our faith, we, we place ourselves in the presence of a God offering, asking that those gifts be given to us so that we, they become real. But we cannot manipulate them. We cannot use them for ourselves. When we enter that world, we enter a world in which we know we're trusting on God. A faith in Him to do something we can't. A hope in Him to do something we can't hope for. To love somebody when we have every reason not to. There are times when I want to hang my children. By the, There are times when I'm sure Suzanne wants to hang me. And I want to hang her. Um, it's exactly when something goes wrong when we're asked to love more, or you know, when we don't have a reason for loving. Is that clear? Yes. So that's why this table gets it. Yes. That? Yeah. So that hold on. So that's why that's why I'm relating to this, because at the end of Shakespeare's plays, Shakespeare not only grounds us realistically in the natural order. Right? Portia's a very prudent woman. 
She, she does, she's so wise, so prudent, but the outcome of every one of those plays shows the work of something beyond the prudence of a character, whether it's Helena or Portia or Othello or Anthony and Cleopatra. He's showing us in both tragedies and comedies an, an, an order of nature is being realized, the goodness of it, because of our natural power, temperance, prudence, whatever the natural virtues are. But he's always completing the plays in a way that lets, makes us aware we're on the verge of something else, transcendent. And very often we don't understand that because so often, this takes us back to the Jewish world, um, we're, we're critical because we're using terms that are comfortable to us and very often we, we don't see something else going on in the world. One of the aims of this work that we've been doing together, you know that, is to, to, I've chosen works that are, in my mind, great because they help us see ourselves. This, you know, this is, was the point from the beginning. They're prophetic in the sense they help us to see things about ourselves that we do not like. What we've been seeing in every play is the people who think that there's nothing wrong with them are the biggest causes of problem in the world. Over and over and over and over, because they're caught in the world. They're caught by the world's terms. And the problems only get worse because they think they're okay. The church, <laughs> Christ kept saying, I'm here for sinners. Um, so every play has shown us um, the natural virtues fulfilled in some way in the natural order, but he always, makes us aware there's something else going on as well. Let me stop. So we're leaving Shakespeare and we're getting ready to, to enter the modern world and, and Scarlet Letter. So any questions about, this is just a very quick, um, the, just enough, because you know how nervous I am about this. We so often think we love well. I don't think we do. I don't think we read well. Remember, in our church, we're called to both justice and mercy, not one at the expense of the other. Somebody who thinks, let's say, a husband who loves his wife, or either put it whatever, children, <coughs> who think that they're loving them when they're enabling them is not loving. We are called to justice and mercy. So if the nature of a love is enabling, if it's letting wrong disorders grow, it's not love. Usually in our, in our works we've seen it's pity. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's not love, but one of the amazing things about Helena is that she, I mean, I tried to make that clear when I looked at her speeches, particularly that virginity speech. She loves Bertram, and in a sense unconditionally. She doesn't do anything bad. She meets those conditions, but, um, and you know that what happens to him at the end, he's unmasked. There's no way he's going to go forward. So what, what our church is calling us to is not easy to bring justice and love together. It never is. Because to be, to be just to somebody very often makes them unhappy with us. But a love without injustice isn't a love. And we're called not to leave it at justice because if we do, we're back in a Jewish world. Is everybody following how hard this is? The amazing thing for me about Shakespeare is he me he's doing in plays what St. Thomas did in philosophy. Those two things define his world. And he does not give us a play in which he does not meet both of those things, realize them. It's what's so extraordinary about him. It's why at the end of a play, whether a tragedy or a comedy, we can come out at rest. We've seen something, even, even, if, it, even if we had to look at something painful. 
sure all of this is a lot of review. I hope it's <coughs> not boring you guys because I feel like sometimes I... Any questions before we leave Shakespeare? I don't think it's a question. It's more of a... That you put into words maybe thoughts that we have, but we haven't been able to put our hands around them. You know, when you define them that way, then you start thinking back in your mind about the things that you did or didn't do and yeah. what the outcome was. Yeah, yeah. But I'd, I've never heard anybody describe things the way you have. <laughs> Thanks, David. Take no, that as a... Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. it's, you know. Anybody? Any questions or before we... Well, you're saying that he had a real grasp of Aristotle and Thomas. Everything. He, he, let me, he had a grasp of the great <clears throat> pagans, the pre-Socratics, Plato, Aristotle, all the philosophers. He had a grasp of the dramatists, the Greek and Roman dramatists. He had a grasp of the scholastics, Aristotle, Boethius, you know, Thomas. I mean, he just, you know, Boethius is, um, there is no bad fortune. I mean, people read that in, as an idea in their head. To be an artist, to work out a play, that shows the truth of that. I just look, I mean, you already know because we talked about it last week. I'm just in awe of what he does, but sorry, Tom. Well, all, he had a grasp of all of it, I think. How does he know this? I mean, it's like, I don't know if it's a, it, 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 maybe it's a gift of the Spirit for him to be able to look at that whole history that has unfolded over centuries and to discern what is there that most of us don't see. I like what David's saying is that you're putting into words that yeah. that reveals our own experience in some way. But you know, I've only got a glimpse of Shakespeare a few times with your help, and it was like it's, it's dumbfounding. It it just stops me in my tracks to say he understands this. And um, it dumbfounds me too. Yeah, I'm just in awe of him. How can somebody? How can somebody do that? This? I know. I, I know. know. And I don't know I if he formally studied this or just was this part of his education. I knew he was trained well in the classics, I think. But, um, you know, but it's like, how did he get that exposure? It's a I mean, special gift. You can't, yeah. I couldn't do that and, and learn and do what he did. I don't have that gift. He had to have a gift yes. to take all of that. And I don't know that it's explainable. Yeah, I don't. I feel exactly, you know, because I already said this last week because I've been on too. I mean, it's a little bit like trying, we, believe, we live in a world that thinks we can explain everything scientifically. That's part of the problem, that we don't live very well in mystery. But it's a little bit like saying, how do you explain Bach? I, you, I think I've said this, I think that Shakespeare, Dante, and Bach are the greatest artists who've ever lived. How do you explain, and when I listen to Bach, some of the things that I just love, I, I feel like he takes me to the outskirts of heaven or right there at the gates, you know, that he's just, some of his stuff is just amazing. And set it against modern music? <laughs> um, but how, I mean, how, I can't even begin to answer that question. How did he do it? He loved music. I think he loved Christ. He could not have done what he did if he hadn't. That was his, the way his soul took what he loved, music, the sounds of things, and ordered them towards the order that he felt in his love of God in heaven and you know and everything. So and I think Shakespeare did the same thing with images, with human beings, you know, and scenes and actions. That's that's why he's so good, because when we read him, we're not in a world of ideas. We're actually participating in the lives of other people. 
I think one of the great things of literature is that it, help, it helps strengthen us in us a feeling of, um, what's the word? Um, it's not compassion for another, but... Uh, empathy? Empathy, thanks. It, it increases our, our capacity for empathy. We can feel because we enter into the lives of these people. Here, you got it? Sit there, yeah. And, but he also enlightens our minds because in literature we can help see something, you know, visually. And so, anyway, let, let go ahead. I was just going to make the observation too. We talked about this that it also he is one of the only people for whom there's this growing group of debunkers because the totality of everything he wrote to many other mere mortals don't they don't believe one human being was capable. Of and that there is this growing group yeah. that yeah. Shakespeare wasn't. Yeah. Anything from not real to not that prolific to not male. He's a dead white male. Yeah. <laughs> All I can say is that's, I hope I can glory in that one day. That I can take a share in that deadness of those, those human beings who happen to have the misfortune of being white or male. I think it's envy. I think it's envy that they and do that. He, yeah, because no, how could one person do all of that? No way. And they're they're judging that on their own limitations. Yeah, yeah. Let's go, because I don't want to go down there. If you get me started in this, I won't stop. So okay. Okay, I wanted to define the here knows that so very quickly, I want to just cover the background of the Reformation. We already did this in the in the Protestant Catholic section, but I want to go back, even, even though I know that this is a delicate area, and, um, because it, it, it's the background that gets us to Scarlet Letter. Shakespeare's writing in the Renaissance. The Reformation has already taken place. The Copernican Revolution has already taken place. Machiavelli's already written. So all of the principal writers, or most of the principal writers of the modern world are already there. We have to wait a while before Hegel and Marx, and, but the principal paradigms have shifted dramatically. Um, remember that I've, I've tried to argue, and, and I've tried to be careful about it. I think, um, um, you know, this came up last week, and I, I don't want to go back to it, but I want to be careful. Um, I've tried to argue from the beginning. It has nothing to do with superiority. It has nothing to do with it. It's a question of wholeness for me. That I argued when we did the and I don't even know that argues the right way. What I tried to do was lay out things as I believe they existed and draw conclusions from them. You know that some of the Reformation thinkers were already in the way before um, Henry did what he did um, in, in breaking from Rome. And lots of those reformers were, um, were appealing to describe um, inequalities between the poor and the rich. So the peasants' revolt or things like that, that impoverished areas would be taken by Reformation thinkers because they associated so many of the disorders that they were suffering from, from with the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church tend to be identified with the, the, the aristocratic structure of the, of the countries. So part of the impetus for the Reformation was in those discrepancies between poor and rich. But what what relates more directly to what we're doing here with Scarlet Letter is what happened with Henry and what came out of it. 
When Henry broke from Rome and made himself the sovereign head of the church, he turned England into a, what we would call a Caesarism, Caesar, Caesaropapism. It's, it's the head of the state using political power to force people to believe, to accept his beliefs. If they didn't, you know what happened, they were dead. Thomas More refused to sign that Supremacy Act and was killed. The Catholics were persecuted, pushed underground. The, the, the reformers, the um, Puritans, same thing. If people didn't abide by the established religion, they were subject to death. Okay? One of the effects of that that I argued when we looked at it, when we looked at Milton and Dante, is that um, it not only set a bad precedent because it, it could encourage any other regime to break from Rome, it also undermined reason. Because if you, if you no longer owe obedience to the Pope, the universal church, you can make any argument you want to break from it. And I, I want to say this really clearly. I, I want to be careful here because I, sometimes you can just you know, brush over this and, and don't understand it. I hope everybody understands reason by itself is insufficient. Reason can destroy itself. Thought can destroy itself. We know that a, a man who's on the verge of suicide can use his reason, his powers of reason, to justify what he's going to do. Reason by itself is vulnerable. Religion, faith by itself, is vulnerable. Either one can be harmful. There's pathologies to religion. There's pathologies to faith. Perversities for both. Reason has to relate to an order that will help it, or, or reason will destroy itself. Remove those, I mean, the Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire or, you know, wherever you want to go, make reason supreme and you're creating an insane condition. You're going to, what you're going to do is create an insane, I believe that we're, I believe that we're, I don't know that I should tell you this, I believe we're living in an insane asylum today and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. The, the world to me is insane and we, we act like it's not. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to go, I don't want to go there, but reason by itself can't protect itself. It has to be rooted in a higher power to protect its nature, or we can abuse People commit suicide will give themselves a reason. People for killing, people who kill somebody else will give themselves a reason. Setting off a bomb, starting a war. People use their rational powers all the time. If, faith, if reason isn't rooted in a higher power, it's a danger to itself. If faith isn't rooted in a lower power, it has no way of um, keeping itself honest. We know that from perversities in the church. People can make claims to have seen all sorts of religious things. The church is very careful in that because they know the religious imagination can get away with itself, can run away. I mean, it can claim all sorts of things that are not true. When Henry broke off, when the Reformation broke, began, it, 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 what it did was undermine both powers, reason and faith. And it's interesting, if you watch the, if you watch the um, churches break down, generally they're on the basis of some authority. Episcopalians, the, bi the bishops, Presbyterians, the presbyters, the elders, you know, you can go down the line. So what we watch is faith and reason both attacked. And we saw the effects of that politically in England because when the Presbyterians came into power they wanted the Anglicans to conform to them. When the Anglicans came into power they wanted the Presbyterians to conform to them. Milton started out as a Presbyterian. He got disillusioned, turned away from that. The last word on him is that he became a religion unto himself because every one of the, every one of the churches that he placed his hope in failed.
they didn't live up to what he was hoping for them. So the Reformation is set in, more, in, in motion. When we get to America and we finally get to the point of our Constitution, the first Bill of Rights was that we can make no law establishing religion. That was at the basis because we'd already lived to, through two centuries of political regimes tearing themselves apart for religious reasons. So, um, so in the in the Reformation, a, a lot of disorders were set in motion. Um, one of them that comes from the the major reformers, Luther and Calvin, you know, was that the 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 effects of the fall were complete. That when Adam and Eve fell, they they were depraved. So both Luther and Calvin believed that man had no free will and that his powers of reason were corrupt. And both of them exalted the private will. Okay, that it meant it would be harder for anybody to try to reason with somebody holding those beliefs because that person believed he was acting in God, with God behind him. We're going to see that in Scarlet Letter. Is that okay? Is that clear? So um, both of them believed that man was completely depraved and both of them believed that the, the private will, the private person was arbiter of his own life. And both of them, Calvin believed in predestination. That whatever a person does was, was predetermined by God, whether it was for good or evil. If it was evil, it was an indication that person was among the damned, that he was predetermined, predestined to be damned before he was born. So those are the beliefs we're bringing into Scarlet Letter, okay? Um, and Mel, or Hawthorne's looking, th looking at them pretty closely. Um, where's, oh, the missing link. So the Puritans, to escape the persecution in England, because it was the Puritans and Catholics who were the real objects of the anger of the throne, they fled to Netherlands, and from the Netherlands they came to America. So in 1620, they, they come here. Gave up everything, their nation, their country, their families, their possessions to come here. In order that, so that they could practice their faith without a government telling them what to believe. That is fundamental to the American character. Absolutely fundamental. And I think, I, I hope I stressed this enough. Um, um, I think I said it last week or the week before. If you look at the crisis going on in the 19th century, the, the, the terms of the crisis, this is serious. The two radically different ways of reading the world are at odds with each other. They're in collision. A scientific and a biblical. Those of you who've done Moby Dick already know that because I, we've talked about what Ishmael is doing and how he explores things and that wonderful, that openness of mind that he brings to everything he does. So those two ways, or those traditions are in conflict because their presuppositions are at odds. So their starting points are radically at odds with each other. Um, where is it going? The, um, oh, who saw that? And who could do anything about it? Who, who takes on a scientific way of looking at a religious way of looking and managing it in a way to reconcile them? Because they should be reconciled. The origins of any scientific thought should be reason, should be God, ultimately. And the origins of biblical faith, I mean, in some large degree, is faith. 
The origins of that is God. God's at the source of both of them. They should be reconciled, but who reconciles them? Nobody. Nobody. Mm, sorry. <laughs> the poets. This is, I, I don't think I'm misstating here. Could any anthropologist, any what politician, any sociologist, do what Melville and Hawthorne do? No, because they're, they're too rooted in their own beliefs. Belief, yeah. It's the poets, the two, and we've done, those of you who've done Moby Dick are going to appreciate, I wish I'd, I wish I'd, I wish Suzanne had leaned on me earlier, so I was doing, I think she did, and I didn't listen to her. Again. Again. What? <laughs> Again. Be still. God. Uh, we're, I, I told, you know, I'm doing Elizabeth Ann Seton, and we're going back to the, we just got through Shakespeare, and we're going back to the epics, and I, I'm, I can't tell you how much I'm loving this class, and I told him, I can't wait till we get to Melville and Hawthorne, because there I'm going to put them together. Here, I'm sorry. I so wish, I'm just counting on those of you who've done Moby Dick in this class, will hold on to it, because we won't do it again, because if you put those two men together, Melville is exercising um, Calvin, the, the idea of predestination and inherent evil, Ahab is crushed by having been raised by those bleak. He is, he is angry and indignant to think that a human being has no free will to live in the world and have all that capacity and then know that it means nothing. It's futile because God determined everything already. So he's answering Calvin in that way. Hawthorne's answering Calvin and other Protestant beliefs in a very different way. But there are those two men, mid-19th century, poets, who are answering that conflict. So we've done Moby Dick, now we're doing Scarlet Letter. And I, as I said before, what's at, issue in the, what's at issue in Ahab is, or Melville's Moby Dick is, this, in, this apparently inherent evil in nature, that a whale could take off a man's leg and seem to do it deliberately, suggests an evil metaphysics. Ahab wants to strike through the mask, get at that thing, and get vengeance. Um, Hawthorne's dealing with um, the problem between law and mercy and particularly as it relates to sex because it involves um, giving birth to a child who's going to grow up under that stigma that, that the, the, the Puritans are going um, um, to not estrange but ostracize, ostracize that they're going to ostracize, put um, Hester outside their circle, and Pearl, that child, is going to grow up under that influence. So he's going right to the heart in the sense that he's dealing with sex and childbirth and the, the moral, spiritual influence of a community on that, on that mother in her relationship with her child. So both of these writers are going to fundamental things at the heart of our Protestant character. Look at all the rest of the novels in Europe, 19th century. None of them are getting close to what these two men are because our founding was essentially religious and recent. In, in Europe, that's not so. Read Jane Austen, read Dickens, read Thackeray, read who you want. You'll never get close to what's going on here with these two writers. Okay? And it leads to this term, and I wanted to uh, just underscore it. I said, um, Hawthorne's writing a romance, and we'll get to it to make it clear right away. He's writing a romance, and by romance I don't mean a man and a woman going out for a date. And 
By romance, he's dealing with something improbable, unlikely, that seems mysterious and maybe even miraculous. Hawthorne's doing that, so is Melville. And neither one of them was liked by their public, precisely for that reason. When we did Moby Dick, I said this, the, the critical response to Moby Dick was awful. They said, what stupid things this guy's writing. Who, who can believe this? A whale doing this sort of stuff? They mocked him, laughed at him. Ooh, boy, the readings. John the Baptist was possessed. Christ was a drunkard. There it is again. There it is again. Hawthorne um, received, had the same reception by his public. This is all nonsense. A scarlet letter that burns when you touch it. Are you kidding? So, here's what both men were facing. They knew they were writing at a time in history when the scientific way of looking at things had, had assumed such control, it was so pervasive, it had such an influence on shaping the minds of men that nobody would believe in the miraculous anymore. And both of them took that on, and they produced these two works. So, what I'm suggesting is both of those works mark um, a critique of our beginnings and an attempt to change them, to, to help people not stay in this black-white mindset that, that I believe, I still believe, is so typical of Americans, was then is today. So these two poets are helping us to see and feel something that's in, in, a, in the context of this crisis that was going on then, I think it still is today. So that's, um, I'd like to get to the custom, or I mean to the Scarlet Letter, if there are any questions, go ahead, you guys. Okay, Custom House. I'm going to just read to take us back. Okay, um, wait, we've already, I've already talked about Calvin. Remember, I mentioned this before, so it's a, a summary again, just a brief. When the Puritans came, they came united in their faith. They wanted to create a city on a hill. Reagan made that important. Um, so often politicians would go back. That's one of our defining images as a people. We were set aside as a religious people to protect religious freedom. To, to practice our belief in God, to not have a government determine how we should believe or what we should believe. Um, when they arrived, they were unified. They weren't here very long when, they, when, when problems with their beliefs began to emerge. The fundamental problem had to do with faith, and the group divided into two factions. There were those who believed in the Holy Spirit, and they believed that if they lived according to the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't have to follow the laws of men because the Holy Spirit was higher than the laws of men. Anne Hutchinson is the best example. And if you've read the book, you know, Hawk, this is so interesting to me. It really, I didn't even come close to seeing this when I did my dissertation. Hawthorne calls her sainted Anne Hutchinson. She was persecuted by the other group. Because of this belief she held, she was accused of committing crimes by the other group. The other group believed that faith was the most important thing as well, but they believed that your faith was made real by the evidence of your actions. And what was most important for them is that you join the church and conform to its ways. So you've had somebody 
independent, individualistic, claiming that on the basis of her faith she was following the Holy Spirit and she wasn't subject to the laws that the rest of the community was subject to. You can see what a threat that that would present to the other group. And it was on the basis of that that she said she was living scripture. Because for both of them, the only authority was scripture. I'm not going to go into this now, but I'd like to ask you, if you look at the political parties today, can you, can you line them up? I don't want to go there, but it's just an interesting thought. She believed she wasn't accountable to laws. That her faith raised, elevated her above that, okay? She, so she was accused, brought to trial, and you know that she was finally exiled, um, condemned. Um, and the other group believes that faith was also essential, that there was no other means of authority or learning except in the scripture, that, that philosophy was bad, and the evidence of your faith was that you joined the church and conformed to its ways. Okay? Now the problem with that, if you think about it, is that if, if you do anything that, that isn't in conformity with the church, it's immediately assumed that that's bad, that you, you're among the damned. Because remember, there's only two groups. It's black and white for these, these early settlers. If you did anything that didn't conform, you're among the damned. Now think about the effects of that. One of them, is, it seems to me, is that it would produce a kind of hypertension that between this black, if you ever found yourself close to something, you'd have to wonder whether you're among the damned. How, how difficult that, that would be, living, particularly as a child growing up. The other is, although they thought of themselves as being humbled by God, by their beliefs, because they were serving him, what, it, what their beliefs did was ironically magnify their own sense of themselves, because everything they did was God's word. Because they believed in predestination, it, that everything was already predetermined, whatever they came to at the end was just in accord with what he had planned. So what it did was magnify their will. Imagine trying to reason with any of those people. Okay, now just, if, if that isn't clear, let me do this just by way of contrast. For the Catholic tradition, we do not believe that we were ruined. We believe that we were wounded, that man's nature is good, that we're under the power of a concupiscence, and sometimes that concupiscence is so great it's overwhelming. We can't, as much as we struggle to put away our sins, we can't. They keep coming back. We don't believe that the fall was complete, that we're depraved by nature, we believe that we're good but terribly wounded. And we also believe that reason, unaided reason, is a good, not a bad, so that we can use our powers of reason. They can even lead us to God. So for the Catholic, there should be a tie between faith and reason. And insofar as the Catholic believes in reason, um, he, he has a help in what the, the Catholic tradition knows as natural law tradition that there are laws in nature that we can discover. Plato, Aristotle, the great pagans discovered them, we know them. And those, those, we, have a, we have a belief that you can create good laws that are natural. They don't have to depend on God. The pagans have done that. If you read Aristotle's politics or Plato's Republic, you can see men distinguishing between bad things and good things, bad laws and good laws. Is that clear? So there's a basis in nature, in natural law for the Catholic. In the, in the Puritan coming to America, there was none. There was only God's law. Natural law was not good. It was something associated with the pagans. 
So anybody who didn't conform to the church laws under God was seen as bad. So they're living in this black-white situation. Is that clear? Both of them believed in faith. Both of them believed the only authority was the Bible. And believed that because she lived by the Spirit, she wasn't answerable to the laws of a social world. The larger majority party believed that um, those laws, living according to those laws, was a sign and evidence of your faith. So the laws were crucial. So we've got this terrible division, this horrible strain, and it's at work in this story. Okay? Any, any questions? The, the, the reason I'm stressing this so much is these are our beginnings. I know that there were other foundings. There were other parties from Europe that came. There were Catholic parties that came in the you know, north of Boston. But these are beginnings, and it's interesting that Melville and, and uh, Hawthorne go back to Boston and Massachusetts here. So these are our beginnings. So in going to Scarlet Letter, even though you know, it was written more than a century ago and, and Hawthorne was writing about a, an event that took place centuries before him, we were really looking at our beginnings. Okay, any, any questions about the... So Henry created um, a Caesarism, Tsarism, what we call Caesaropapism where the, the, the head of the state becomes the head of the religion too. So he can determine what religious practices people should follow. In America, we've got a theocracy. The religious leaders are in charge and they determine the structure of the government, the laws. So to go against them is not just to go against Caesar, it's to go against God. That's why the the, the passions, the emotions here are so intense and so often dark. Any, any, any questions? Yeah, repeat what you said about Henry. I didn't get the whole sentence. Henry, America, um, with theocracy, and you said Henry created... Henry, did, I went through that. I think you may have been gone, Linda. I was just recalling what Henry did when he made himself the head of the Church of England. You can call head that of church and state. Sorry? Head of church and state. Right. Okay. Right. Um, he made himself the head of the church and put the whole church under his laws. So. Okay. Okay. Um, um, I want to look I want to look at um, so the major theme of Scarlet Letter is, is love. It's a love story between a man and a woman. It's an illicit love. A, a minister, um, you, you know from your Dimsdale conceives a child with Hester. And as, this is, God, this is, God, he just, the brilliance of this man. He's a religious leader. For him to come out and admit he's the father, you can imagine, would so shake that community, and it would so shake his pride. And that's part of the issue we've got to look at here. Hester's left to bear the burden of that sin by herself. If you remember, one of the reasons I chose this is because I wasn't going to do this, but we were doing Shakespeare, and I 
suddenly came to that realization that all these women were doing these extraordinary things and the men were, for the most part, scumbags. God. Okay, let's see. Next week we're reading Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> <laughs> to, to answer the women in this crowd. good we're going to have a good taste of the opposite here. <laughs> Try to balance out this this feminist impulse here. Um, so sorry, where was I going? You started it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did I start it with? Remind me, Beth. No, I mean the, the the women being. Oh yeah, that that Hester is left to bear the burden of this and. Um, so there at the center, we've, a woman is made to bear this. The, the man happens to be a minister. So you can, you can see the importance of this conflict right from the beginning. Male, female, sex, a child, and the issue of law and mercy. Um, um, so it's a love story. In the, in the opening pages, Hawthorne's going to make it clear that he's giving us a tale about sorrow and grief. It's at the heart of this story. Um, and it's also at the same time, absolutely at the same time, like Melville, a story of revenge. Because if you don't get your way, if you break the law and somebody hurts you, that was the major theme of Moby Dick. Ahab was injured by this whale, he wants to get back in it. And because of his theology, that evil is at work in this world, there has to be an agent responsible. His whole quest is to get back at whatever that agent is to strike through that mask. So vengeance was at the heart of Moby Dick. Vengeance is at the heart here. When somebody does something to hurt you, you want to get back. Chilling, Chillingworth comes into town at that day when Hester is brought out to stand on a trial as a humiliation, as a penance for her, as a, a, a moment of ignominy, of shame. Chillingworth is there and sees her, and you know that a couple of chapters later he visits her in the jail and he makes clear to her um, that, and he holds her to a, he holds her to a secret. She cannot divulge his identity because he says to her, if she does, he will do everything he can to make the, mis the misery greater for whoever the man was that had that child. And we know from, the, from all that takes place is that he's doing everything he can to discover who that person is. And maybe a third of the way into the book, there's that scene in which he comes into Dimsdale's room. He's already rooming in the same house. He has this sense that there's something there, but he, he's not sure that this is the man. He goes into the room, opens his breast. This is one of the improbable. This is the romantic element I'm talking about. He, he um, separates Dimsdale's shirt. I think he puts his hand there, and he, he sees. We're supposed to, Hawthorne never describes it, but we're supposed to assume that he sees a duplicate of the scarlet letter, that there's an A on his breast or something that gives away that this is the husband of Hester. And from that point on, Chillingworth begins to change because he becomes sinister. He's, he's, he's as close to Iago. He, he wants to do nothing but get back at this man. So it's a story of love and revenge. Um, here, and it goes back to our founding. I want to read, uh, so there's Two, in addition to this theme of love, I'd like everybody to just think about um, um, this theme of, of um, this theme of um, 
I'm going to call it romance of the improbable. Um, but it more specifically could be named symbolism. Um, usually that's thought of as a technique, but here I don't think we can separate it from the action of what actually goes on. Let me, let me try to make that clear. So there's two techniques that Hawthorne keeps using in the, in the work. One I'm calling symbolism, and the other you, we can call um, multiple possibilities. And I know neither of those are going to be clear right now, but they'll become clear right away. Turn to page um, 42. Wait, no, sorry. I want to, I want to very quickly go through the scarlet, or the customer. Um, I think I said this last week, but I want to just briefly go through it again. The custom house, um, most people find boring. They, it's, it seems wordy and pointless, and, and so they'd like to dismiss it and get to the story. Nothing could be farther from the truth. If you don't see that as integral to the story, then you're not reading it well. You've got something in the way. Um, what Hawthorne's doing, principally, well, he's doing a number of things. The most important thing that he's doing is this. He knows he's writing romances for an audience that has no taste for romance. He's got to do everything he can to make what he's about to say believable. So what does he do? He roots us in the present, in an actual situation. By doing that, it's going to be harder for somebody to discredit what he's going to go on to do. Because it's while he's there at the custom house that he finds the scarlet letter. Okay? It's actually there as a political document. Now what, so he locates us in a real place, a real time, and with himself as the writer. So nobody can deny that. That's an empirical fact. So he's doing everything he can to, to take away this idea that there's something wrong with romance by locating it. That's the most important thing, okay? But he's doing a couple of other things too, and I want you just to be aware of these again. We've already turned to page 10. Hawthorne makes clear that he loves Salem, this town. Bottom of page 9. And yet, though invariably happiest elsewhere, there is within me a feeling for old Salem, which in lack of a better phrase, I must be content to call affection. The sentiment is probably assignable to a deep and aged roots, which my family has struck into the soil. It is nearly now two centuries and a quarter since the original Britain. It goes on. At the very bottom, he says, I walk the streets in part, therefore, page 10, the attachment which I speak of is the mere sensuous sympathy of dust for dust. Remember, this is kind of the Catholic sort of illusions. From dust we came to dust. Um, I speak of the mere sensuous sympathy of dust for dust. Few of my countrymen can know what it is, nor as frequent transplantation is perhaps better for the stock, need they consider it desirable to know. I'm going to raise a question here. What he's saying is we've become such a transient people, people have no sense of roots anymore. If you're not rooted to a place, how can you write of it? If it's not in your blood, if you don't love it in your roots, 
If you don't love it, how can there be anything there enough to write about it? He loves this place. It's the sympathy of, of dust for dust. And then he goes on to say, same page. Um, as far back as I can remember, it still haunts me and induces a sort of home feeling with the past, which I scarcely came in reference to the present phase of town. He recalls one of his ancestors and that original Hawthorne, one of the original setters, Hawthorne, he changes his own name to dissociate himself from it because part of him is ashamed because that original Hawthorne um, was active in er, persecuting the witches, the women. Well, it was men and women, largely women, okay? Um, middle of page 10, his son too inherited the persecuting spirit and made himself so conspicuous in the martyrdom of the witches that their blood may fairly be said to have left a stain upon him. He feels such a shame in what his parents have done, his ancestors, that he takes the sin on himself. He's doing exactly what Helena did with Bertram. Um, I know not whether these ancestors of mine bethought themselves to repent and ask pardon of heaven for their cruelties, or whether they're now groaning under heavy consequences of them, that hell in another state. At all events, I, the present writer, as their representative, hereby take shame upon myself for their sakes and pray that any curse incurred by them, as I have heard, and as the dreary and unprosperous condition of the race, for many a long year back, would argue to exist, may now be and henceforth removed. He's taking the sin on himself. Could he have written the, the word earlier that I use as empathy? Could he have written as he did if, if taking on himself the shame of his ancestors wasn't real? Okay. So that's another one of the reasons for the custom house. You remember when he describes the father of the custom house, he, he, he's barely distinguishable from an animal. He describes him getting down on all fours. All he cares about is sleep and eating. Um, um, one of the things that he's showing us is that once established work takes over in a culture, there's the danger that people will lose their roots, and which we know is true. So one of the differences between those original settlers and the current generation is that they were all dedicated to God. These people have become dedicated to work. And they're becoming complacent and arrogant. They're given to their appetites to feed their body, to sleep. Um, go on over to page, I think it's 30, 30. He comes up to the room, you remember, and he finds this packet, and in it is this, this cloth, a scarlet letter, and he begins to read about this woman, Hester Prynne, and he's taken, so taken by her that he, he paces the room, and he, like, an, it's, this is, in, it's like Ahab pacing the deck, he's worried about people underneath um, being bothered. Um, and as he contemplates these figures, um, going over to 30, he talks about the importance of firelight and moonbeams. And this is a moment of actual chastisement for him because as he starts imagining these figures, um, his imagination for the first time in years is reawakened because it's gone to sleep. And work, working has put it to sleep. He's not done any writing for three years. So his writing is dried up. He's slipped into this job. He's comfortable. And then he says this, middle of 30. Um, 
I doubt whether the title of the Scarlet Letter would ever have been brought before the public eye. My imagination was tar a tarnished mirror. It would not reflect, or only with miserable dimness, the figures with which I did my best to people it. So the source of it is real people, but what he was going to do with, it was, with his imagination would change. But he's, he is so dried up, he's been so uncreative for so many years now that he doesn't feel capable of doing this. He says, as he thought about these figures, the figures say to him, bottom of the page, what have you to do with us? That expression seemed to say, they're making faces in. The little power you might once have possessed over the tribe of unrealities is gone. You have bartered it for a pittance of the public gold. This is Judas. He sold out the work that he should have been doing for money. So his imagination is worthless. He's done. Over on 31, but as he begins to imagine, and, and you know that the only reason he wanted to write this is because he was fired. Finally he was let go. So he was free to return to his real work. 31, moonlight in a familiar room falling so wide upon the carpet and showing all its figures so distinctly is a medium the most suitable for a romance writer to get acquaintance with his elusive gifts. He says the same thing about fire, the, the light it has. So, and he actually uses the term mirror in there. There's two kinds of literature, and there's more than two, but in this tale, there's two kinds of literature as Hawthorne sets them out in the custom out. Here's the, the most important point to take away from this. What he's doing is what's called um, um, offering it an exegetical principle, a, a way of interpreting what's going on. He's making clear a difference between two kinds of art so we know how to interpret what he's doing. Because if anybody goes into this expecting a realist novel, they're going to be disappointed. Okay? Now remember, everybody in Europe, Jane Austen, Thackeray, you name it, they're all writing what's called classical realism. Okay? The image for it is a mirror. You, literature is holding up a mirror to life, so what we're getting back is what appears to our senses. Yeah? So in Jane Austen, you'll, you'll never, in Jane Austen, sometimes in Dickens, you get, Dickens does amazing things, but for the most part, the 19th century, 18th century, 19th century writers were classic realist writers, okay? In romance, Hawthorne is saying, there's something from inside the poet that's projected out. So the image here is a mirror, the image here is a lamp, a light. So from a man's mind and his intellect, he can cast a light on something to help bring out something that's there in reality, that a mirror won't show. Is that clear? One of them is empirical, the other one is symbolic. There's more there than meets the eye. So the nature of a romance um, is improbable, mysterious, sometimes magical. Um, there's an element of romance to Tolkien. If, you, if you've done the, you know, if you've read or seen the movie, if you've seen the Fellowship of the Ring stuff. Okay. And symbolism, there's more that meets the eye. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Just to make this clear, let's go to the, let's, any questions about what romance is in a, in a re classical realist novel. Moby Dick was a romance, according to this. 
a whale that chases people and 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 Ishmael who's who spared at the end, the birds had their mouth their beaks closed and the sharks had their this is the what um, Jonah. So it's it's a miracle is taking place. He's the only one to survive. He he comes back to write that story. It's a miracle. Well, <laughs> drives me nuts. Um, the, 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 the editor of the Norton Re Critical Review, which is probably the, the high mark of, of criticism and accolades in the literary community, for the man to be the editor of the, of the Norton Moby Dick means he's the one who has command of the whole spectrum of criticism, I mean, all that's written, and he'll select the criticism to get into that. So it's got the story in the front and then in the back it's got essays on Moby Dick. His reading of that ending is that Moby Dick leaves us with a sense of the inscrutable in life. You know, he can't call it a miracle because to do that means, you know, you're in a Christian world. It's unscrutable. <laughs> There's no way to read Moby Dick and not see the connection with Jonah at all. And he's spared at the end when everybody else, anyway, but... Everybody sees the difference so between it. So it's unscrutable, it can't be a miracle? Is that what you... No, I'm not saying that, Linda. I'm okay. saying he's, he, he, he uses that word to describe what's going on. Which word? Inscrutable. Inscrutable. And, and synonyms like that through his piece. But the last thing he's going to say is that it's a miracle, or the last thing he'll do is relate it to, relate it to the Jonah story. It's just... It's a modern critic using language to... You know, it is inscrutable. Well, it's a little bit scrutable, I think. There's things we can say about it, but anyway. Here, take a look at page. What did I say? We're just saying we've never heard the word scrutable. Inscrutable. I'd never heard it either until that moment. Turn to page 42. Turn to, turn to well, there's no better word, right? It is scrutable. No, you can read into it. Yeah. Turn to page 42. Here's an example of symbolism. This is the opening. Hester's going to emerge from the, the jail with um, um, Pearl in her hands. 42, this, and he's describing this rose, this black rose bush situated right next to the prison door. And he says, 42, this rose bush, by a strange chance, has been kept alive in history, but whether it had been survived out of the stern old wilderness so long after the fall of the gigantic, gigantic pines and oaks that originally overshadowed, or whether, as there is fair authority for believing, it had sprung up under the footsteps of the sainted Anne Hutchinson as she entered the prison door, we shall not take upon us to determine. Finding it so directly on the threshold of our narrative, which is now about to issue from that inauspicious portal, we could hardly do otherwise than pluck one of its flowers and present it to the reader. It may serve, let us hope, to symbolize some sweet moral blossom that may be found along the track or relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty and sorrow. Now, to reinforce a point here. <coughs> and Hutchinson was a real historical character. In the very first chapter, we're located in history. And Hutchinson was real. She was exiled. She was persecuted. If you Google it and read it, to me it's sad. It's, it's like watching some of the hearings that are going on politically today. It's just really awful. She's exiled. Um, 
Mistress Higgins, a, a witch figure who keeps appearing in the story, was an actual figure. She was actually executed as a witch. I think in 1659, or I can't remember, 1650s. And you know that the witch trials are going to take place in the 1690s. Hundreds of people are going to be accused of witchery. Um, I think half of them were actually executed. And the, the majority of those executed were women. When we get to a scene involving Pearl later, I'm going to make a parallel because the way Hawthorne describes Pearl later in the book when Hester and Dimsdale meet in the forest, Pearl's going to go nuts. Hester's going to take the, the letter off her bosom. And when Pearl sees that, she's going to get furious. She keeps pointing as if to say, put that on. It's, she's become so accustomed to it. She'll start flailing and getting angry and yelling. Hawthorne's description of Pearl corresponds to the description of the evidence that people used against women to prove that they were witches. Pearl's going to grow up under that. The witch trials are going to take place 50 years later. So Hawthorne's aware of all of this, okay? So he's doing everything he can to ground us in actual historical events, just the way Shakespeare would with Caesar, you know. But what do you do with a line like this? It, um, we could do hardly do otherwise than pluck one of the flowers and present it to the reader. It may serve, let us hope, to symbolize some sweet moral blossom that may be found along. So, He's describing a scene in literature, this bush near the prison door, plucking one of its flowers and offering it to us. Now, what's the function of that line, that passage? What's he doing with literature? Well, he's saying this is there's a hidden depth here that that he's that it, he's alluding to, but it's in the future of, the, of what unfolds. There's a component here. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess you, if you think he's outside the prison door and that door is going to open, I think it's just that it's dreadful that she's going to be humiliated and shamed. But on the yeah. other hand, there's something about her uh, integrity or her, her, her morality that's different than the community and, and actually indicts the community by how she handles what is done to her. Yeah. That I think gains respect for her ultimately, but uh, yep. But I think it's just that that he's he's kind of it isn't as dark as you think it is. Although that flower is there, it's still pretty dark. It is pretty dark. Yeah. Here, I want to take this literally. Did any of you feel a flower physically, empirically, put in your hand, placed in your hand when Hawthorne said that? He's saying of a, he's saying of something that's occurring in a book. Here's a flower. Okay, we're outside the book. This is occurring. He plucks a flower from that and hands it to us. My question is, what's he doing with that? Because ordinarily, authors don't do that. What's he doing? What's the function of that gesture, that scene? Is that clear? Did anybody feel a flower being placed? Did anybody receive a flower? And You're all holding a flower now after I've read this? Yeah. <laughs> So what's he doing? Getting us involved. Hmm? He's getting us involved. Getting us involved, yeah. Or, you know. What does that make of the work of literature? For him to take an object inside the literature and hand it to us, what does that do for our relationship to the story? It's a gift. Huh? It's a gift. It's a gift to us. It's a, here's, 
here's something you might not enjoy. That's the wrong word. But it's a you, dark flower. Yeah, yeah. But, you, but you might learn from, gain from. Um, yeah. This is what I can give you. Yeah. This is my talent. Yeah. It, it, I mean, e either we take that literally and say it's stupid, because empirically it doesn't happen, or we say it's symbolic and what he's, hand, what he's doing is giving us a gift, and what he's saying by doing that is saying there's a spiritual character the, to the book that you're receiving through the symbolism that's passing to you. So, so it's, making, it's making of the work of literature not just this hard thing that's bounded and outside of us, he, he's saying that there's this oneness of something we share together now, that this is a part of you. If and it's dark. It. Huh? If you're open to it. Yeah. <laughs> Guess you can throw the flower away or not receive it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Did, oh, Jay, yeah. I, was, I don't know whether this is at all helpful to know, but as I, I think I mentioned in an earlier class, it, the custom house is still standing. And, and if you go to Salem, the graveyard, the Puritan graveyard, is within the vision of the front door of the customs house. So he, every day going to work, had to bypass the Puritan graveyard. Yeah, yeah. May or may not mean anything, yeah. I don't know. It would have meant a lot to him. He's too sensitive to, mm -hmm. he, he'd see and feel things a lot of us don't. Here, I want to I want to look at one passage, and then I want to let everybody go, because. Miss Suzanne is probably pulling her hair out by now. I want to look at one more um, passage dealing with symbolism because it goes so to the heart of the story. And then I want to just I want to look at this thing called um, alternative possibilities. Remember that in this in this um, culture, people are encouraged to see things in terms of black whites to save the damned. So any sin, according to that mindset, was a type of every other sin. It's an indication you're among the damned or not. If you're conforming to the church, then all your actions will be in, um, actions that suggest piety or reverence. Or, and I hope you can see already where this is going because if, if, uh, if I mean, we're back in Faulkner and Melville. Remember all of, our, all of those classes in which we talked about respectability and how, how enabling it is and how much, how much it can conceal, how much people get away with um, in that world. Um, this black and white mindset encourages people to see things in terms of abstractions. So any sin was a sign, an emblem of sin. It took that abstract intellectual form. Just hold on to that. If, if it doesn't mean much sense to make much sense now, I hope it will in a second. So for example, you've got a rose. You know, it's, it's being handed. It's symbolic of something. Um, take a look at... Um, at, I want to look at the chapter on Pearl. Um, to go to um, 7682. 
Um, chapter 6, um, Hawthorne describes Pearl in great detail. Hester has made a, um, a habit of, um, of um, as a seamstress, making clothes for people. And the clothes that she makes tend to be dark yeah. and simple. Um, the clothes she makes for Pearl are different. And Hawthorne makes it clear that in, in Pearl she's expressing something of her own creativity that otherwise is repressed in this um, culture. Um, page 76. Her mother, while Pearl was yet an infant, grew acquainted with a certain peculiar look that warned her when it would be labor thrown away to insist, persuade, or plead. It was a look so intelligent yet inexplicable, so perverse, sometimes so malicious, but generally accompanied by a wild flow of spirits that Hester could not help questioning such moment whether Pearl was a human child. If you have a strong notion of sin and depravity, it's got to be a serious question when you look at your child whether that child isn't depraved. I mean, imagine growing up that way, being a child of that culture. Um, page 77. Um, Hester Prynne, and then what happiness would have been could Hester Prynne have heard her clear bird-like voice mingling with the uproar of other childish voices and have distinguished and unraveled her own darling's tones amid all the entangled outcry of a group of sportive children. But this could never be. Pearl was born outcast of the infantile world, an imp of evil, emblem, emblem and product of sin. So Pearl is the living sign of sin in that community. Is that clear? I mean, the, the importance of that. So she's not just a child. She's evidence. She's a sign, an emblem of the existence of sin through Hester and the father. And product of sin, she had no right among Christian infants. Nothing was more remarkable than the instinct, as it seemed, with which the child comprehended her loneliness. The destiny that had drawn an inviolable circle around about her. Go on over. 38 or 78. The truth was that the little Puritans, being of the most intolerant brood that ever lived, had got a vague idea of something outlandish, unearthly, and at variance with ordinary fashions in the mother and child. Because remember, she's grown up with the mother always having this emblem, and it's as if this circle surrounds her that isolates her from the community. Even if she moves about, she's isolated, she's alone. She's in a private world marked by her sin. Not infrequently reviled them with, the, with their tongues. Pearl felt the sentiment and requited it with the bitterest hatred that can be supposed to make now rankle. So the Puritan children are themselves really unkind. Pearl's response, mean, I mean, just angrily to get back. These outbreaks of a fierce temper had a kind of value and even comfort for her mother because there was at least an intelligible earnestness to the mood instead of the fitful caprice that so often thwarted her in a child's manifestation. It appalled her nevertheless to discern here again a shadowy reflection of the evil that had existed in herself. All this enmity and passion had Pearl inherited by an inalienable right out of Hester's heart. I, I'm, I'm trying to be careful here. Imagine the difference between um, a child raised in a community in which a child was baptized and everybody in the community understand, in that moment, all sin is gone. And a child growing up without that, 
so that a mother grows up wondering if her child isn't evil. Um, and how, how much faith, how faith changes in both of those communities, because both communities have faith, right? Faith is at the center, but what a difference. Um, going over to 80, you can imagine Hester constantly looking at her daughter and being patient and allowing for her childish ways and still concerned given her circumstances, but page 80, once this freakish elvish cast came into the child's eyes while Hester was looking at her own image in them and mothers are fond of doing because you know that you're very often you, the glass of the eye will reflect back your own image. For women in solitude and with troubled hearts are pestered with unaccountable delusion, she fancied that she beheld not her own miniature portrait, but another face in the small black mirror of Pearl's eye. It was a face fiend-like, full of smiling malice, yet bearing the semblance of features that she had known full well, was seldom with a smile and never with malice in them. It was as if an evil spirit possessed the child and had just then peeped forth in mockery. Many a time afterwards, Hester had been tortured, though less vividly, by the same illusion. Down below, at last, her shot being all expected, the child stood still and gazed at Hester with a little laughing image of a fiend peeping out, or whether it peeped or no, her mother so imagined it, from the unsearchable abyss of her black eyes. Go to 87. You know that Pearl and Hester are invited to the governor's mansion because the ministers have to decide whether or not they're going to take her. Because acting in, the be in, in their mind, acting in the best interest of the child because they think if Pearl is raised by Hester, she's going to end up no good. So they're seriously thinking about um, taking her away. Um, as they're going through the, the, uh, the mansion, they come across a suit of mail from the old days, from the bottom of 87. Little Pearl, who was as greatly pleased with the gleaming armor as she had been with the glittering frontispiece of the house, spent some time looking at the polished mirror of the breastplate. Mother, cried she, I see you here. Look, look. Hester looked by way of humoring the child, and she saw that, owing to the peculiar effect of this convict mirror, the scarlet letter was represented in exaggerated and gigantic proportions so as to be greatly the most prominent feature of her appearance. So looking, you can imagine a concave breastplate with Hester standing before it with an image. So it's reflected back, but it's so large, it's exaggerated. So what, what's this, why, symbolically speaking, what's the importance of this scene here? Amplifying her sin. Huh? It's amplifying her sin. Yeah. Is there anything else that shows in that breastplate? That sin becomes so large that it cancels, it, it obliterates everything else. There's nothing more than that sin. So, symbolically, again, it's just another way of Hawthorne helping us to see the importance that that un disproportionate importance that fact has here. Um, going over to... Do you think he's saying that, that you know, he's dealing about the Calvinistic idea that this, this person is corrupt? I mean, and that, that sin obliterates 
any humanity of seeing me. Any goodness, any goodness is just goodness gone. Is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. I mean, what I think symbolically it's saying that the that for the whole community, it's an image of a way of symbolizing, representative how how great this sin is for people. What they see, it it, it doesn't allow for anything else. You know, in this image here. I think we can see the importance of it even more. Go to, go to, sorry, I'm just not used to this stuff. Go to 97. You know that Dimsdale um, is called to speak for her, and he does. None of them knows that this is the father of the child. And he makes an appeal to everybody and says that, um, and it's interesting to me that he, that he calls to mind a Catholic image when he talks about pictures of the Virgin Mary with Christ, and, and um, a, a, there are allusions to that in his defense. What he's saying is that there's a sacredness between a mother and its child. To take that child away from the mother will do more harm to it than good, even though you're trying to protect the child. And it could um, harm the woman. Now, go to the end of the chapter, to that page. As they're leaving, Mistress Hibbins, who is Bellingham, the governor's sister, greets Hester, page 97. Hiss, hiss, said she, while her ill omen physiognomy seemed to cast a shadow over the cheerful newness of the house. Now remember, Dimsdale has just defended Hester and Pearl, so Hester is allowed to keep the child, so they're leaving. And Hester has to have some assurance now that she's been protected, that she just faced a grave threat. Wilt thou go with us tonight? There will be a merry company in the forest, and well nigh promise the black man that comely Hester Prince should make one. Will she be one of the company? Make my excuses to him, so please you, answered Hester with a triumphant smile. I must tarry at home and keep watch over my little pearl. Had they taken her from me, I would willingly have gone with thee into the forest and signed my name in the black man's book too, and that with mine own blood. We shall have thee there anon, said the witch lady, frowning as she drew back. But here, if we suppose this interview between Miss, Mistress Hibbins and Hester Prynne to be authentic and not a parable, was all, already an illustration of the young minister's argument against sundering the relationship of a fallen mother to the offspring. So she says, Hester says, had they taken her from me, I would have willingly gone into the forest. That is, if they had taken her, her faith would have been gone. That's how serious this crisis is. Is everybody clear? That is, she would have given in to despair. Her faith would have been gone. So we, we just witnessed Hester facing a, a, a profound spiritual crisis. If they had taken her, her faith <coughs> would have been crushed. Um, and we know from history that um, Mistress Hibbins was actually executed several years later. So Hawthorne, once again, is doing two things. He's locating this an actual historical thing while revealing a supernatural fact, okay? Now, I want to I look at one more passage dealing with what I'm calling alternative possibilities. But I just want, through the first eight books, say, we're going we're gonna to do eight books each. We'll do eight books next time, and then eight books, and we're done, okay? So... But um, you know that all, all works of art start with an opening problem, <coughs> whatever it is. 
and they develop by a complication. They move towards a crisis, and then a denouement and a resolution, right? Now, what is the opening problem? And it seems to me there's a couple of complications. This is a quiz. What's the opening problem? Well, we it's a try about a wedlock and it's not okay with the community. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry? I think it's who's the father. Say, oh, who's the father? That's what they... Yeah. It's also this, this question of whether the, the law is being applied mercifully. Yeah. And we're going to see in the opening pages that according to the women, this is where I'm going to go to in a minute, the women think not that if the law were upheld, these magistrates are not doing their job, according to these women. Um, but there's this question about law and mercy, what the relationship is between it. And the way it's exemplified in the beginning is through this woman who's made to suffer the humiliation of having a child out of wedlock and the father not being there. And you know in the opening scene, they try to get her to admit who it was, and she's, she's which in their eyes makes the sign to, to sin worse because she's adding defiance to it. So the opening problem has to do with this fundamental issue of the relationship between law and mercy as it involves this woman. What are the complications? Can you name a couple? What complicates it? Well, first is the showing up of her former husband. Yep. <laughs> the interview with um, Chillingworth and Hester because he poses a threat to her. He will expose her husband. and we, So something mean enters the drama then. Any other complications? Well, the father's the icon of the saintly community. We don't know that well, yet. Well, okay. Oh, we know. Yeah, we, I guess before you know it. Yeah, we don't know that yet, but... Pearl is a complication. Hmm? Pearl? Baby. Yeah, you can say that. I, I think <coughs> when I hear... Yes. I think the other is the scene we just watched where they're threatening to take her away. All it does is reinforce in us a sense of the severity of things that they're going to take her away. Um, it, because what it does is emphasize the sin again, and we learn afterwards that if they had taken this, the child away, it would have been devastating, um, and Hester would have lost her faith. I mean, who knows what would have happened then? So, so the, the, the implications of this Puritan way of governing the, the culture it's created, the, the spirit that it's bringing into what I would call our human predicament, how we live, you know, the, the rules that govern us, the spirit of things, is getting darker. She, uh, Hester also decided to stay and live in the community, and, and there was something about that she could have left and gone somewhere else and taken off the uh, scarlet letter and, and maybe even said she was a widow or mm -hmm. something and reinvent herself so to speak yeah. and 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 not live um, it's like it's setting up that she is working in that system or that she's working to uh, re be redeemed or redeem the system or she's there's going to be a change, and it's either going to be her or the system. Yeah, we don't know that yet. 
Can anybody give compelling reasons for her staying? Just in terms of the story, not getting ahead? Just mm -mm. loyalty to the community. I, mean, that's I, I think it's it. right and wrong. I think right there's wrong. a sense of, of right and wrong that she's got. That she's, yeah. she's going to stand up. She didn't want to run. Yeah. No, she she, it's her principles. Mm -hmm. It's also her faith. In some ways, I mean, she fights against it, but in some ways, she is grounded in that belief structure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to say all of these, yes, yes, but I'm, I, I'm going to say also her pride, mm -hmm. which is not a good thing, but it's, it gives her the strength to hold to something, and the fact that the father of the child is there. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a lot of, I, I don't see the possibility of running as a great one here. And it's interesting because at the end, I don't want to give things away, I'm, I'm not going to, at the end, she and Dimsdale are going to meet. And they're going to, for the first moment in seven years, she takes the letter off. The two of them, and they're in a forest, in a forest. The two of them have this extraordinary sense of freedom <coughs> and relief of having borne this sin for seven years. And I can't tell you what they decide to do. But I think at this point, I, I just don't think it's, she's seriously entertaining leaving because there are too many things holding her there. Um, her faith... Um, her pride, the husband, the father. She's going to bear this. Anyway, here, I want, to, I want to read this last thing and then we'll go. Turn to page. Go to the marketplace where the women um, talk about what should happen on page 43. Um, Hester comes out to, 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 for her moment of ignominy or shame and the community is gathered around, and we get this exchange among these five women, page 44, 45. The first woman, good wife, this to me is so crucial to the whole story. Good wife said a hard-featured dame of 50, I'll tell you a piece of my mind. I'll give you a piece of my mind if you want to know it. Even if you don't ask. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because it's so in keeping. It would be greatly for the public behoof if we women, being of mature age and church members in good repute. Now remember, you have to be in conformity with the church because that's the sign you're among the elect, the saved. So think about the effect of this in, in, in terms of conformity in what people do. Being of mature age and church members in good repute, should we have the handling of such malefactresses as this Hester Prynne? What think ye, gossips, if the hussy stood up for judgment for us five that are here now and not together, would she come off with such a sentence as the worshipful magistrates of the word? I mean, they're criticizing the clergy, saying how stupid these men are. Does that sound yeah. feminist, I hope? Mm -hmm. um, um, would she come off as well? Mary, I trow not. People say, said another, the Reverend Master Dimsdale, her godly pastor, take, this is so ironic, the irony of this goes so deep, that the Reverend Master Dimsdale, her goodly pastor, takes it very grievously to heart that such a scandal should have come upon his <laughs> congregation. Let me go, I'm not, this is rhetorical. How well do these women read? Go on. The magistrate are God-fearing gentlemen, but merciful overmuch. That's a truth added a third autumnal, autumnal matron. At the very least, they should have put the brand of a hot iron on Hester Prince's forehead. So if she'd gotten what she deserved, the law... Somebody should have taken up 
branding iron, heated, put a scarlet A on her head. Should have put the brand of a hot iron on Hester Prince's forehead. Madam Hester would have winced at that, I warrant me. But she, the naughty baggage, little will she care what they put upon the bodice of her gown. Why, look you, she may cover it with a brooch or some like heathenish adornment. So walk the streets as brave as ever. So imagine Anne Hathel, or Hutchinson's response to that, that, a, that somebody would have been punished and if, if somebody had answered by putting on a brooch or colorful things, it would have been a clear sign that that person was outside the community. Ah, but interposed more softly a young wife holding a child by the hand, let her cover the mark as she will. The pang of it will be always in her heart. This is the one woman who seems to have a feeling of empathy for what's going on with Hester. What do we talk marks and brands, whether on the bodice of her gown or the flesh of her forehead, cried another female, the ugliest as well as the most pitiless of these self-constituted judges. This woman has brought shame upon us all and ought to die. Is there not a law for it? Truly there is, both in scripture and the statute book. Then let the magistrates who have made it of no effect thank themselves if their own wives and daughters go astray. She's quoting scripture now because that's the source of authority for everything. <clears throat> Before I go to my real question, any ironies about any of this, and particularly the last woman, has brought shame upon us and ought to die, is there lone law for it? Truly there is in both the scripture and the statute book. What's the irony there? She's quoting the Old Testament the scripture, not the New Testament. Go ahead. Flesh it out, Don. Well, I mean, Jesus in the New Testament, you know, when the woman fought for adultery, right. I mean, the Old Testament was stoner. Right. Death, you know. Yeah. And Jesus says, let he without sin cast right. the first stone. Right. She's quoting scripture. She's quoting scripture and doesn't see how it ought she was with a call to charity. Now, hold on. I want to make a, because this to me is too important. Um, could, <clears throat> Christ is the son, the begotten of the father. Would Christ in anything he did ever go undermine the father's law? I hope everybody's clear. This is this this is the son taken who's taken on flesh. So, to 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 make this black white, is to assume that that Christ has overturned the law, which is one of the problems going on here. Is that clear? Would Christ ever do anything to go against his father, or was he completely obedient to him? Completely obedient, and he himself said, "I came not to overthrow the law; I came to fulfill it in every iota." He didn't follow the Jewish observances, they're 616, whatever they are, but he did not disobey the Father and he did not undermine the law. And the, the irony of this scene is, in the New Testament, in that scene in which um, Christ comes on the, the elders who bring the woman who committed adultery before them and are gonna stone her to death, because death was the, um, the, 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 the result, I mean, what was the penalty for adultery. And here's, I think, the really crucial thing. Christ doesn't undermine the law. He asks that the elders have a mercy in the way that they do it. He sends them back chastised. He's not asking them to give up the law, but he's, he's, he's made it clear to them that um, the way they enforce the law has to show some recognition of their own sins. Because if they hold themselves self-righteously above it, they're doing something not good. And he sends the adulterous woman back under the law. 
So in neither case does he do away with the law, but he radically changes the spirit people bring to it. He says to her, go, go and sin no more. So Christ is not setting the law and love against each other. He's fulfilling the law, but bringing the spirit to them. This woman is quoting the scripture, and she doesn't even see how far away she is from it. But here's my question. What's Hawthorne doing with these multiple possibilities? You've got five women. Four of them are just mean. Put a brand on her. One of them says, kill her. These ministers aren't doing their job. It's a little bit like the reading this morning, you know, where John was, had a demon and Christ was a drunkard. And What's he doing with this, what I'm calling multiple? Because you're, we're going to encounter this again and again and again. When, when Dimdale goes to the platform at night, we're going to have different readings of what happened here. When we get to the very end and Dimsdale does what he does, which I can't say, we're going to have multiple readings again. Here we've got at the very beginning of the story, you've got Hester on the pillar, pillory, and these women giving their judgments about what should happen. Why does he do that? What's he doing? Is he bringing the audience in or the community in? That there's many interpretations here and they're all giving their point of view that that represent the community of judgment against her. Yeah. And uh, some of it gets pretty dark, obviously. Yeah. You know, and, and you don't you don't know that's in their minds until they say it out loud. Yeah. Yeah, we get all these different perspectives and they're all dark. What's missing from or maybe not missing? Mercy. Yeah. Yeah. There's only one person. I, I can't read these five without hearing Christ go, how does he call it? <clears throat> Broad is the gate, wide is the gate, but narrow is the gate. And the one thing the all these women, except for the one woman, that all except for the one, they all lack a sense of charity. And you've got Christ going, broad is the gate. I can't remember that. You know the passage I'm talking about, broad is the gate, but narrow is the gate, and the way the nation is large. So he's showing us this, this great array of ways of looking that seem representative of the community. But except for the one young woman who has a child, they're all lacking in charity. This one little thing. So we're getting a glimpse, like the, like the breastplate of the, of, the, of the male, how large the sin is and what it's doing to a community, the, the way it's affecting people's minds and hearts and the way they act with each other. But it feeds a self-righteousness. Hmm? It feeds a self-righteousness. Yes. Because yes. I think we said it a moment ago, is that when we can divorce ourselves from the sin, then it gets crazy and yeah. revengeful. Yes. Know? Yeah. And I think that always brings humility because it Should, you would right, hope. That you would hope, right? Yeah. But, but the women are so judgmental. Yeah, and it's sin well, upon sin upon sin. They are, but that was, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if that was going to be. But <laughs> it was very representative of those times. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Cotton and Increase Mather were not exactly party guys. Yeah. I mean, well, the witch, the witch trials are not far off here, right. so sorry. Right. Just turn on the TV. Well, turn it <laughs> oh, watch the political debate. I can't watch the. I'm not kidding. I cannot watch the political debate with. By, by the way. Conformity above the law. And Hutchins, the, I mean, you cannot watch this stuff without seeing both of those extremes play out politically. The spirit behind them has not changed in 200 years, 300 years. 
Well, I like Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. Listen, next week, we're, so we're meeting next week. We'll do the next eight books, and then we, we break, and when we come back, we'll finish um, <coughs> Scarlet Letter. And then I, we're doing Elliot, if I remember. So, we're in the cathedral? Yeah. So enjoy it. I mean, finish, finish. It is a really good book. It, it, here's here. What, here, let me put it. What does Hawthorne do... The, the book is going to end on an inaugural speech by Dimsdale. He's the pastor who's going to deliver an inaugural speech. So it means it's a way, in fact, they go into it saying it's an old man. It's an old way that's being changed. I've said this before. I think what Hawthorne's doing is doing what the epic poets do. He's, he's redeeming the past. He's carrying the past forward, bearing it, just the way he said, I take on the sins of my father's. He's taking it on. Here's my question. What does he do to change it? How does he do it? What, what happens at the end? You guys have got to read to find out. <laughs> Hold on, The key is Oh. He's a distributor. I just oh, don't know. Sorry, I showed up so late. Yeah, I'm going to get out of work. Another book that 